How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. Computer vision is a field within artificial intelligence that is having significant impacts in medicine. Automated analysis of medical scan images can provide rich sources of insight and machine learning techniques to process this data open up a realm of possibilities for both researchers and clinicians. Dr. Nilan Jen Ray studied mechanical engineering and computer science. He is a leading researcher in computer vision, image analysis, and visual recognition with deep learning. His current focus includes the application of cutting-edge computer vision techniques to advance research in diabetes treatment. He is a professor of computer science at the University of Alberta, and he joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Katrina, for having me on. Well, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society Signature Research Area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all of our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you? Wow, profound question. Well, um, it's an umbrella term, and the way it is used today is pretty much anything your computer does. However, there are some distinctions, and it kind of, to me, uh, what it means is that when a computer program, say, tries to behave human-like and makes decision, human-like decisions, that's what, to me, uh, would be AI. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean when you think about healthcare and you think about AI? What, what does that mean when you intersect the two of those things? Right. Maybe before I get to this question, I should say a few more words about AI because um, it'll be easier for me to explain than get into AI and the healthcare. When I say human-like decisions, right, it's it's already fuzzy. You can see. Now, we typically make sort of two types of decisions all the time, and one type would be sort of. A, Conscious decisions, okay, so conscious meaning some deliberate thing. Okay, so I want to grab this bottle that's sitting on my table. But when I do that, I actually don't realize how exactly I'm grabbing the bottle. That's that's automatic part of our decision making. And both these things are coming into play within the healthcare now. Both these types of AI, conscious decision, deliberate decision making, versus some of the things that are almost automatic and we don't do that consciously, even the program. So I'll get to that gradually. But so that's sort of the start of AI. So you can see that AI is already very complicated. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> it sounds super complicated and we're only talking about grabbing a water bottle at this point. Um. <laughs> yes, okay. Now, I, for healthcare, the, coming back to your question, um, the possibility is enormous today. Okay, so let, let me just, the other day I was uh, listening to a TED talk and I'm originally from India. And in that TED talk, the person was explaining how 
diabetic retinopathy is going to be brought into different labs and different um, healthcare settings in India. And that's that's enormous because a lot of people, even in Canada, in some communities, the remote communities, they don't have access to uh, you know adequate screening, for example, for their eyes, right? If they're diabetic, they want to do screening. And you know, for that screening, their retina would be basically scanned, and then some expert has to look at that scan and make the decision whether the person needs to see a specialist or not. Now, that part, if we can imagine, if a computer program makes that decision, looking at the scan, and then says that, okay, yes, there's no need for this person to go to see a specialist, versus there is a need, that type of screening would be enormous for a lot of people that it can actually be accessible to a lot of people that's they're not you know, able to access it now. So it's a way to reach a lot of people, democratize um, healthcare. So the possibilities are truly, truly enormous. There are also other settings and this diabetic treatment research that I'm involved with in order to even make that kind of treatment available to a lot of people uh, we there's almost no choice today to you know other than making taking help from ai to bring the cost down to scale up um this is where we are with the yeah. intersection of ai and healthcare yeah there's a lot to uh, to unpack there and I, I think we're going to get to a lot of that but before we do i'm i'm curious about you can you tell me a little bit about how you came to be interested uh, in computer science and specifically in this area of artificial intelligence what inspired you to focus on this area it's not by any conscious decision making okay mm. <laughs> it's the unconscious part okay what do i mean by that so when i was studying my master's program and I heard about this professor, uh, he's pretty lenient, and he does computer vision image processing. <laughs> I thought, okay, I want to I wanna choose a project so that I can work with him to make my life simpler. <laughs> so that's how I got introduced to this fantastic, fascinating area of um, vision, computer vision image analysis. And gradually, I fell in love. So that brought me, so that's a little anecdote, that brought me <laughs> to, to this area. But then I stayed with it, and then I, certain things, if I can mention, fascinates me about vision, is that, you know, this is one of the, so, so first of all, this is not unique to humans, even though we're talking about intelligent systems and things like that. It's been evolving over almost like 600 million years. And Animal Kingdom has this vision system and not just us. So it's not, it's, it's sort of, there's something very universal, almost universal about our visual system, right? So what is it that fascinates me? Yeah, 
That is super interesting. And I, I appreciate your, your candidness and sharing that you got into this field sort of haphazardly and, and because you thought perhaps it would be an easier uh, course load, um, but then <laughs> fell in love with it. I love that story. Yes. And I, I think what I'd love to do now is, is talk a bit more about um, this area of computer vision and how does it actually work? I mean, I think we have a sense in hearing the words computer vision or hearing about image analysis, but perhaps you could take us um, through that in, in layman's terms and just briefly explain to our listeners, how does AI and machine learning work in computer vision? What does that process actually look like? Computer vision, it means that a program is going to make sense of a scene that it sees. So the way we try to make sense of you know, our surroundings or whatever we see, right? Uh, what do I mean by make sense of? Interpret. Okay, there is a bicycle passing by, right? And, and um, okay, so that's a tree. That's a cat right there. Um, and then, so, some of these are, again, I go back to the notion of unconscious versus conscious. Some of these things are unconscious. We recognize these objects almost unconsciously. But then we try to connect these things often consciously. What is happening in the scene? Can I interpret the scene? So everything as a package is called computer vision when a computer program tries to mimic this type of human-like making sense of our world. Right. So I, I've heard about um, how labeled data can be used in machine learning or, or unlabeled data. That's right. How, how does this actually work in the context of your work when it comes to kind of having the machine see and make sense of these objects? What, what actually is going on with the data? Right. So I'm going to, that, that's a great question. So I'm going to actually parse it down with, if I may, with two different things. Well, they are, again, they come under the same umbrella of AI. However, there is some distinct differences. So let me just first talk about um, non-machine learning-based AI and machine learning-based AI. I'll come to that notion after I talk about non-machine learning-based AI. Sure. And I'm going to pick actually an example that, you know, this one, this project I did, um, when was it? I think around 2007, 2008, with some of the colleagues um, from Computing Science and from Cross Cancer Institute here at University of Alberta. So we were looking at MRI brain scans and we're trying to uh, locate automatically by help of a computer program, locate the tumor regions within the MRI scan. Now, when we were starting the problem, we saw that a lot of uh, these brain tumors are actually located on one side of the brain, either left or right, but not kind of crossing from one side to the other. And then we thought that, okay, uh, maybe a program can make use of this knowledge here that most, if I have to attach a number, like 95% of the time we saw that. And then also we know that our brain structure is kind of symmetric. You know, there is left and right symmetry. So if we can make use of this knowledge that we humans 
have that drainage symmetric, we need to put a bounding box. And we're probably looking at the most dissimilar area between the left side and the right side. And when we find the most dissimilar area, and we can put a rectangle around that most dissimilar area, that becomes our tumor region. And why, why we wanted to do that is because we wanted to organize our image databases. And that has like thousands of patients and millions of images. So it's really not possible for an expert or even a layperson to organize the images. So how to do that, maybe a computer program can help us to do that. And that would basically down the line that would help us to experts to for better diagnosis. Like, okay, have you seen this similar type of case before? Okay, let's retrieve the images with these type of tumors um, and et cetera, right? So that's basically for diagnosis purposes. But anyway, so coming back that this knowledge, we, we have brain is symmetric. How do we encode that knowledge into a computer program? This type of rule-based encoding, and we derived you know, a program out of that working fantastically. This type of system would be called AI, but it's a non-machine learning type of AI. So where we are not making use of data, but rather, okay, the data is there, but we're rather making use of the rule and we want to encode that within our computer program. Right. Are these commonly known as expert systems? Yes. Expert system, called by various names, rule-based AI and things like that. Contrast that with the machine learning system. We could have solved the same problem or tried to solve the same problem using machine learning. How would it go? Okay, so what does it involve? Then what we have, we, what we would have to do is that we have to look at these scans and then someone, an expert or layperson or whoever, a human being, has to produce some tags for these images. And then those tags would be rectangles. The rectangles would tightly inscribe those tumor regions, okay? So we would have to create lots of such, such annotated images. And then a computer program would look at the images and image and its associate tag. Another image and its associated tag. So these pairs, okay? Then the computer program would, in the future, when it is presented with an image, then it would be able to predict that where that bounding box would be there that would just inscribe the tumor region. Yeah. Right? So do you see the two differences here? The, the first one was we tried to in, instill our knowledge into a program versus the second one that's learning from data. Well, the data was annotated, super, you know, there was some human intervention, supervision, but the program is purely learning from data. So these are the two things we make use of within computer vision system, non-ML systems and ML systems. Right. So are, these two things are kind of working together uh, in the context of your work, or you're using both of these tool sets in the context of your work? It's almost always one or the other. Okay. It's but, and that as a researcher, as a practitioner, you had to make that choice. Okay, the first one, which is a non-ML versus non-ML solution, 
when it works, it actually works like a term and it doesn't have the associated cost of like annotating the data and things like that. But the reach of machine learning, ML solution is actually even better. What, what do I mean by that? So you pay the cost of you know, annotating the data, but then you don't have to say, going back to that exam example, you don't have to make use of your knowledge or maybe it's limited knowledge. Sometimes we do see that the tumors actually go from one side of the brain to, to the other side. So it's not quite, you know, you cannot make use of that symmetry rule, right? So the reach of machine learning is actually a bit more. You know, it's, it's less restrictive. Yeah. But you pay a price there. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's almost as you describe it in the second scenario with machine learning, it, it almost seems like sometimes the machine can see things that perhaps might not have been uh, apparent by the human. Is that? Yeah. And then just to add, sorry, just to add one more really compelling example here, we often, and this is the case, we often cannot have any explicit rules for recognition. Imagine, for example, you are trying to recognize a cat versus a dog. How would you describe a set of rules <laughs> for cats? And then that would discriminate the cats from dogs. It's impossible. Easier way would be, here's a picture, here's a dog picture, versus here's a picture that's a cat picture, right? And you show these examples to your machine, and then let, let machine work on it how it wants to assess it. <laughs> Yeah, as, as someone who works in audio, I would think, well, if we only had audio data layered on top of that vision, we could distinguish the cat and the dog easier than uh, than just the image. But I, I see your point. <laughs> I want to layer on one more concept, uh, because I remember reading in one of your papers uh, that you mentioned uh, the term GANs or generative adversarial networks. And, and I know this is a type of machine learning technique that often gets associated with creating deep fakes um, and a lot of other negative things. I'm just wondering if you can explain in simple terms, how does GANs work? And then how do you use that in the context of your work? This is a fascinating technology. And I know it's kind of these days often associated with deep fakes and definitely for a justifiable reason. I understand that. But the potential are enormous. But I mean, to, to explain it to a general audience, let me just take a detour. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm imagining that, okay, so let, let's say I am the tester. You know, I want to test a pizza. Okay. And that my um, son, who is uh, new to cooking, uh, wants to cook. And here's a game where we're going to play. So he would cook a pizza, prepare a pizza. And uh, when I test it, I'm going to say that mm, this is, and he would not, he would, I would not know who actually uh, made this. I would say, okay, actually, this is made by you. This, this is done by you as opposed to your mom. <laughs> and in the beginning, you know, it'll be easier for me to catch him. So he will cook, and then I said, no, 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 this is done by you. Definitely not your mom. She's an expert chef. Um, and then she, he would go back and then say that, okay, this time I, you know, he would improve his skills and at cooking, and then he'll come back and say, this time, can you tell me? Then I said, no, it's still you, buddy. And then he would go back and then improve his skill, right? 
this way at some point in time i would not be able to make the difference between who actually cooked this right and then that time he he would fool me and then i'm going to say okay i'll scratch my head and say okay buddy just uh, let me you know ask your mom to cook pizza next time and then she would cook next time and then say then i'd realize oh yeah so she actually makes use of this and that that's the difference so i then i i as as the as a discriminator um becomes better at catching him right so this is the game that would be actually played between uh two neural networks so one neural network is called generator that would be my son and the other neural network would be discriminator that would be me so the generator neural network will generate an image and my job discriminator would be to catch whether this was generated artificially by neural network versus it comes from a natural database and that natural database would be maybe compiled by you know mom taking some pictures or downloading pictures whatever so this is the game that would be played between two neural networks and as uh, the two players get better at their games generator ultimately will improve its skill and it will really produce real world images that and that's what gives rise to the steep fake does it make sense i love this pizza analogy this is fantastic um now i i'd love to know okay so how does this then relate to what you do because i'm imagining that you're not creating deep fakes in the context of your work that's right fantastic good so when i okay so yeah, i started out uh, by saying that uh, you know uh, this gans technology generative adversarial neural networks technology is really useful uh, let me just go back to uh, the machine learning example I was citing right so whenever we say machine learning we almost mean like our data needs to be tagged by a human being right so data uh, it could be bounding box it could be some other tag a record whatever it is so it has to be tagged by some human now, some there are some settings. Even though you have the resources to tag images, it's practically impossible to do that, right? You cannot tag images to to show, say, good good examples versus bad examples. So let me just give you. Um, I'm working with uh, actually an optical recognition system (OCR). That can and I, this technology is quite mature today, but still often uh, faces some hurdles. So examples would be your check reader at, at the back, right? So it basically uses this kind of image recognition and optical character recognition. But anyway, imagine that the check um, is crampled and you know under poor lighting conditions, someone takes a picture and then expects the OCR program to read the amount and name and everything correct, okay? That's often the case for the stacks processing companies. And so they, they receive documents, they tell me that they're often like very carelessly taken by their users and then sent to them and they have to process these things. Manual processing becomes almost impossible, right? So imagine a system where uh, these not so good quality images, you want to convert those images to a good quality images 
And when I say good quality, I mean that the it's OCR friendly. The OCR will be able to read those images accurately. But we hardly have this kind of examples that this is a bad image or poor quality image. I want to, and what is going to be the associated tag? Can I convert that to an you know exact version of that that's good for OCR? In, so that's almost impossible. What we have instead is a population of bad images and we could create a population of good images, but not necessarily there is any connection, one-to-one -one connection between images from one group to the images to the other group. This image is not that image in a good version, but we only have population level knowledge. Yeah, it, it sounds very, really interesting. Like you're fixing the data. You're fixing this very small, bad image data set that you have to make it useful. Yes. So, and we are eliminating in the process, we're trying to eliminate the tagging, right? That's the most profound, important thing here. So now a machine learner is asked, a program is asked that, okay, you now have seen these two populations, tons of examples of bad images, tons of examples of good images, but there's no connection between these two populations. Try to now convert one image to the other group, bad image to the good image group, mm -hmm. right? This is exactly where GANs technology is very useful. It does not require human annotations. It sounds really interesting and it, it's, it's nice, it's comforting to know that there are some good uses for this technology and not yes. just <laughs> some of the things that we hear uh, in media reports. I want to ask you um, a, one more question regarding uh, computer vision and then we'll segue into talking a bit more about your project involving diabetes. But when it comes to um, tracking objects, we've been talking a lot about computer vision in the context of still images, but I understand that your work also focuses on video and I'm just wondering about how much more complex is it to do this kind of work when it comes to video versus still images? What are the implications uh, for that on the models or on the amount of compute or data required? What does that look like when it comes to video? Okay, so just to give you that example of uh, object tracking, right? So, you know, one approach is for individual frames of the video images, right? of the video, you apply object detection algorithm, and that would detect bounding boxes around the objects. And that would happen for a bunch of frames. And in the second phase, what you're gonna do is, you're gonna associate that the object in this frame, actually that bounding box in the other frame, right? And then that way you connect a trajectory among all these bounding boxes, and that creates the tracks. So basically then what does it mean? It means that this object has moved to this position in the other form, frame, image frame, and then from there to that, that position to yet another image frame. So do you see that we are talking about these two phases and it's computationally more intensive than just doing the first phase, which is object detection, right? Yeah. So computationally it's definitely more challenging and also, there are lots of um, issues, for example, ID switch. ID switch is that 
often the software confuses that this object is a different object in the other frame. And then kind of they would associate them. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's a very difficult problem. Yeah. Yeah, it does sound uh, very challenging. And in some ways, I'm kind of getting this mental picture of animation and, and still forms of, of images across a, a, a wide variety of, of screens and time and trying to make that all match up uh, seamlessly. I do want to turn and talk a bit more about uh, your project uh, that you're working on with respect to diabetes. You've referenced it a couple of times in our conversation, but if you could maybe give us a sense of, of what uh, what is this project all about and uh, and why might it be uh, revolutionary in terms of looking at type 1 diabetes? Right. The idea here is that uh, you collect blood sample from a patient, and then from that blood sample, you basically generate insulin-producing cells, and that has actually a long process. Uh, I'll talk about that process from computer vision perspective a bit more, but let's just first talk about that process first. So it has that process, and then in, at the end of the you know, 60, 70 days or two months or more, then you collect a lump of cell colonies, then that'll be injected back to this person's body, and that'll become basically that, you know, insulin-producing cells. Now, this technology, you know, Dr. Shapiro's team, um, they have validated this, as far as I understand, with mice, and they have seen fantastic results. This is interesting is because, because the blood is collected from a person, and then the cells are going to be grown from their own blood, and then, then their acceptance of the you know, insulin-producing cell would be more, much better than if my blood is collected and then, then cells are collect, you know, cultured from there and then put back into another person's blood. So this personalized treatment technique with uh, you know, cell technology, cell culture technology, is going to revolutionize revolutionize this diabetes treatment. So this is my, sorry, my rudimentary understanding of the diabetic perspective. But where I come in is to make this process scalable, to make this process affordable for people. Um, right now, this entire process is very lengthy and it's extremely costly. Like basically when you put the cells through, you know, um, this phase of cell differentiation and everything, every single day would add a couple of thousand dollars. And if it stays in for two months or so, you can imagine that it's quickly add up the cost. And not to mention that if an expert has to intervene and kind of assess the quality of what is being developed, Right? It's an extremely tedious and really expensive way of doing things. So that's practically not possible. That's why Dr. Shapiro's stream is working with a lot of people from different areas, computer vision scientists, robotic scientists, and of course, in the background, you have ethicists and lawyers and, and a whole lot of other um, <laughs> team. <laughs> but but, but so, so my job here is to, if I can have a computer vision system that would predict that 
this cell colony, which is being developed only for, let's say, two, two days or so, this is going to be developed into a really healthy one. And then I can quickly transfer that cell colony to further cell differentiation process. And then that cell differentiation process, we can also have another computer vision system that would do a go, no go decisions automatically. Right. Someone doesn't have to look over the shoulder all the time, right? So that computer algorithm would do that. This sounds amazing. And in, in terms of the time, uh, what are we talking about? Like in terms of how much it speeds up this process? Is it exponentially? Is it? Okay. So our hope is that, so th there's an initial phase of 30 days where starting from blood sample collection, putting to the virus load and then developing so the islet uh, healthy cell colonies, that would take about 30, 32 days. So we're hoping to reduce that to within um, eight to 10 days. Mm, wow. And so that's a significant uh, savings we can achieve there in terms of cost. Yeah. And farther, uh, the second phase is called bioreactor phase where the sales are going to develop. There, the no go, no go decisions, if we're able to make the decisions again by a computer system, right? We can also save a lot of costs. The next part doesn't have to look over it and it's impossible when, let's say 500 patients are there, going to be there, it's, it's impossible to manage that. So you do need automation, you do need AI system. Right. You mentioned robotics, which I think is, is really interesting. How does that start to intersect uh, with the work? Right. So full disclaimer that I'm not a robotics specialist. Uh, I do work with uh, you know, robotic scientists, researchers. The way I understand robotics comes in here in this project is that um, I talked about, okay, so when the computer system looks at, this is a healthy cell colony, right? And then someone has to transfer that to the next phase. If that someone is a robotic arm that can do this job safely, um, and that's where you know, one that's one place where robotics comes in. Mm -hmm. Also, there are interventions that needs to be done. So, for example, certain reagents need to be mixed uh, within that phase, and if those things can be done precisely by robotics. That's where um, you know, robotics comes in, in that entire system. Very interesting. We've been talking a lot about the possibilities. They sound so exciting. Uh, there seems to be a lot of benefits uh, to en enabling uh, these processes with machine learning and using all of this data. I'm, I'm wondering about uh, the downside. What are the risks? Is there, is there downside to this? Uh, what do you see as, as being some of, uh, of that side of the story? Safety, right? The concern uh, about safety and liability is a huge issue in general in AI, right? So let me let me talk about it. Um, first of all, let me start with a good good story here, like the good side of it, easier side of each other. So we are aware of lots of mis misuse of AI technologies. For example, if you talk about face recognition, one of the you know, leading pieces of software, they, because some bias in the data set that those systems have been trained with, right? It's prone to making mistakes for certain particular types of people or gender or communities, right? Now, the good news, news here is that once you cut open <laughs> our scheme and then look at you know, that under the microscope, 
those variations like basically are mostly gone essentially we're talking about the, the variations among gender races and those things so the data set bias at least where i come into this particular project is actually much less um, compared to what usually people would associate with when they think of face recognition and other types of software. Right. So that's a good news part of it. But there are other myriads of decisions as um, you know, machine learning um, scientist or a practitioner we have to make. So for example, um, we still have to make decisions about what type of diversity of the data we would like to include to train our system, right? What type of algorithms are you going to be making use of? And though each one of those algorithms has its own bias and downsides, plus, minus, everything. So you have to judge those things, mm -hmm. right? And then on top of that, um, one, one really big thing uh, in AI when it comes to at least healthcare is transparency, right? So basically transparency. So if I ask you that, okay, as a, as a patient, I do have the right that this decision has been made for me by an AI system, but can you explain to me why this was made? So what is the explainability, right? Mm -hmm. All these um, intersections are extremely complicated. And, and a part, I'm excited, by the way, it's not all you know, the dark side or gloomy side, but I'm, I'm happy to be and excited to be part of the project because that's where we come in, that we would like to make a study that'll show the safety, effectiveness of this type of technology. And we're just beginning only. Yeah. And how are you grappling with these ethical issues personally? I know you mentioned ethicists and, and also lawyers um, a little bit earlier, but how are you wrestling with all of these decisions from the perspective of being a computer scientist? When I look at this big picture, I ask myself that where do I have any control? And where do I have control? I have control in choosing the kind of algorithms I want to use, right? Can I make those algorithms transparent? Can my system be able to, would, would it be able to explain its decision? So this is where my control is. I try to make these algorithms more transparent if I can. And where do I have control? I also have control in data, right? What type of data am I going to be working with? For that, I have to reach out to other people in the, in the team and is it making sense biologically? Is it making sense medically? And those things, so I have to be, I have to collaborate with those people. So, okay, so if I, if I just summarize exactly where I have control, I would work on that, right? And I have to leave the big picture or other things to other people. That sounds very reasonable. And, and you have mentioned some of those other people. Um, so I'm getting, I just want to ask you about your team. I'm, I'm getting an image of this multidisciplinary team. And one of the themes that we're exploring this season is the idea of computer scientists working with people in medicine and also other uh, team members. What's that been like for you as a computer scientist to work within this new field of medicine? And, and I guess I would also say vice versa. What's it been like from your perspective for, for your other non-computer science team members to work with you? Oh, yes. So it's um, a lot of learning experience for me. I cannot um, emphasize more. Uh, I, I'm sure we learn from each other, our team. And 
multidisciplinary research is amazing. They, every time it's an, basically a humbling experience. It's not that, okay, you come up with a perfect solution. And then you talk to your colleague in the other area, other discipline, they say, have you realized, have you thought about that? Then I scratch my head, oh yes, shoot. So that's how I think we get better at uh, doing things uh, with a multidisciplinary thing. That's, that's my perspective. So it's learning, learning, and learning. It's good. This reminds me so much of that generative adversarial network scenario where you're constantly <laughs> <laughs> learning That's from right. each other. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, Dr. Ray, this has been fantastic. Uh, my final question for you is just um, what's next for you? Where are things going either with your current project or what kind of future work do you have planned? I do have very keen interest in applying uh, my expertise, computer vision, analysis, analysis to medical imaging and the world of medicine. But also, I'm keenly interested uh, on some some technical aspects of it, but which might be a discussion for another day. And in terms of what do I do next, actually, I'd like to learn, uh, sorry, I'd like to live in the present. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think too much into the future, to be honest. <laughs> I have a very, I work with very talented um, team of students. Absolutely fantastic experience to work with them. So I'm happy in the present. <laughs> That's probably a wise comment to stay in the present. Well, Dr. Ray, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. It's been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you very much, Katrina. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.